Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> As always, it is a privilege and a joy to be here with you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to uh, share uh, with you the truth of God's Word, uh, to break the bread of life together. And uh, I want to thank you again for this opportunity. Um, each and every one of you in here, uh, if you have been with us uh, in the past, we have been doing a study called Jesus in the Old Testament. We've been talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I want to, for the couple of you that are new, I just want to quickly explain why we're doing this. In the book of Luke, Jesus chides his disciples who have now seen him after the resurrection, after he's been raised from the dead, they've seen him, and yet they still can't grasp the reality of what's going on. And he chides his disciples, and he says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Let's go ahead and open it with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for that truth that we have, that light in a world full of darkness, a world full of lies and deception, that we do have your truth and your word to guide us, and not only to guide us, but to grace us with eternal life. My prayer is today as we open your word, you will use this time that we have together to grow us in our knowledge of your truth, to conform us to the, your image, to to make us to see that it's really about you. You are our God and our King, our Lord and our Savior. You are the one that hung on that cross uh, and shed your blood for broken uh, vessels like us. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. So please be with us now. Help us to grow in our grace, our truth, our love. Uh, help us to grow in your mercy and peace. Help us rest in you and not in this world around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we talked about how the reason why we want to see Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a big fancy word, but it's not really fancy. Uh, the redemptive narrative. The redemptive narrative. So to redeem something means to purchase it. If you go to the uh, local grocery store or the local convenience store and you grab you a a 20-ounce soda out of the cooler and go to the counter with it and put it on the counter, the guy's going to ring it up and it's going to come up to like 179 or whatever they cost nowadays. And in order for you to take that Coke out of that store, you are going to have to redeem it. That means you are going to have to take money out of your pocket and you are going to have to pay the asking cost or whatever it was, right? When you pay that $1.79, you then have the right to leave that store with that soda. Why? Because it's yours. You purchased it. You redeemed it. And when you pick up the Bible and you read from Genesis to Revelation, you are reading of the redemptive narrative. It is all one big story about how God purchased us through the fall of creation. He purchased us into a life eternal to a hope that this world cannot give. And as you read through all of the Scriptures, you will realize that this is really one big story about God's love for His creation, specifically for His uh, those created in His image, which is man. And so when you read the Bible, you are reading the redemptive narrative. And at the center of that redemptive narrative is Jesus. It's all about Him. He is the key that unlocks 
all of Scripture. And what he did with his disciples when he chided them was he reminded them that all of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the whole of it, everything, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, all of it is about him. And once we begin to yield to the Holy Spirit, and his leading to show us that, once we begin to realize that it's all about him, then it then it starts making sense. The redemptive narrative starts coming together. How many of y'all ever remember those little pictures that you used to would see at the mall? And it and you had to blur your eyes in order to be able to see the image behind it. I'm gonna be honest with you, I've never, ever, ever, ever seen a picture behind the picture. I can't do it. I, for some reason, I cannot see the picture beyond the picture. Or maybe you've seen uh, those pictures where it'll be a bunch of different little photographs, like millions of little different photographs that have all been pieced together to make a big picture. And then when you go and you stare really close at it, you can see the little pictures inside of the big picture. Right? Well, that's what I want you to think of when you read your Bible. Everything that you read is a picture of Christ. And it all makes one big picture of the redemptive narrative of what He's done for us. And once you do that, then you don't have to start picking the Bible apart and focusing on all the New Testament or focusing on all the Old Testament or maybe focusing just on one particular book. Right? We all have our friends that do that. That's their one thing. This is what they do. That one book. But the reality is you need to see the whole picture. And the whole picture is of Christ. And that's what He was trying to explain to His disciples. So... We talked about the reason why it was important to see Jesus in the Old Testament. He taught that way. That's the main reason. Because the way that Jesus taught... Remember, Jesus didn't have a King James Bible. That didn't come around in 1611. Okay? When Jesus taught, He did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians to turn to. Because they had not been written. So what that means is, Jesus was teaching His disciples about Him in the Old Testament. He was used in these scriptures. And that is the method that Jesus always used. How many times did you remember reading in your Bible as you read, Jesus would be confronting the Pharisees or He would be confronting an unbeliever or He would be confronting people and He would say this, Have you not read? He says that a lot. And what is He saying? Have you not read? Do you not understand your Bible? That's what he was saying to him. And the truth of the matter is, even his own disciples who had been with him for three years and had walked with him, walked the roads back and forth from, uh, from Nazareth to, to Jerusalem and, and saw all the miracles and heard all of his teaching, all his preaching, even they didn't grasp it. And neither will you and I. In all of our lives, we will never ever be able to plunge the depth and the scope and the beauty and the marvel of his word. It's there for you to grow the rest of your life, and it grows you. You see? It conforms you to His image. And it's all about Him. So Jesus would teach that way. The entirety of the Bible, the entire redemptive narrative is theocentric. It's all about God. It's Christocentric. It's all about Christ. And Jesus is God and has revealed Himself to us through the declaration of these promises. So, uh, with that said, um, we talked about different ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Does anybody, without cheating and looking at your papers, does anybody remember any of the ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? How are some ways that I can see Jesus in the Old Testament? 
Okay, you can cheat and look at your paper. Adam and Eve. Genealogies. What do you mean by genealogies? Right, we can see Jesus in the genealogies. We're going to actually see that today. What? How does that work? Because the Bible shows the family tree of Jesus. Can somebody in here name somebody that's in Jesus' family tree? King David, right? And why is that so important? Because the Scriptures prophesize that one day David is going to have a son that's going to rule and reign over the world. Right? So David is in the genealogy. Yeah? So we're going to learn about one of his, his forefathers today. Abraham. Abraham. That's exactly right. We're going to talk about Abraham today. So when you read about Abraham and Jacob and Jacob's son Judah... You're starting to see the family tree of Jesus. So we see him in genealogy. What are some other ways? We see him in prophecies. Remember? We're going to look at Isaiah 53 today for a a quick moment. And that's a prophecy of how the Messiah was going to come and save his people. Written some 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. It was a clear and descriptive picture of what the suffering servant was going to look like when he comes. Right? We see him in types and shadows. Um, Remember... Prophets, priests, kings, altars, sacrifices. All of those things are things that remind us of who Jesus is. He's the great prophet. He's the high priest. He is the sacrifice. And so all of these things, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And all through the Bible, there are shepherds on there. Moses was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. There are shepherds all through the Bible. David, is a, his great granddaddy, was a shepherd. And... and when we see the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want us a reminder that we have a God who is going to shepherd His sheep and take care of them. And it's a prophecy of what the real shepherd will look like when He comes. We see Him in themes, in repetitive echoes of a coming one, like supernatural bursts. We see Him in uh, barren wombs and older brothers and younger brothers who persecute. We see Him in light. We see Him in bread. We see Him in water. All of those are themes that remind us. Remember what 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 is the first line in the Bible say? In the being, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was void and without form. And God said, "Let there be light." And then in John fourteen, what does Jesus say? "I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me never walks in darkness." Okay, so that's just a quick reminder of why we study Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I'll test some of you who have been here. Last time we were together, we talked about Jesus in the flood. Do y'all remember that? We talked about Jesus in the flood. Can somebody tell me one of the ways that we see Jesus in the flood narrative? Anybody? The ark. The ark. What do you mean? Um, You're right. Good. He's the Savior of mankind. So when God's judgment comes upon the world, in in, in that old narrative, what was the judgment? A flood. Right? He flooded the earth. He killed everything that had breath in his lungs. That was a judgment. And so God's judgment was coming on the world, and anybody that would run and get in the ark would be saved. So Jesus is the one that we can run to to be spared and saved from God's judgment on this world. Right. That's very good. Alright, so we get that. So today I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Um, we're going to start, it's probably going to take us three or four classes together to get through the life of Abraham and because there are just so many types that we could see in here of Jesus in the Old Testament. So let me get my little note. I have a note here. Who's that girl that, that, that hid the, uh, the... Rahab? Yeah, Rahab. Mm-hmm. It was in her house. That's very true. Yep. 
So in Genesis chapter 12, let's go ahead and look at a couple of verses of that. It says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord, y'all notice that's all capital letters, right? Anytime you read all capital letters, uh, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, right? The Lord said to Abraham, the Lord, who is the Lord? God, Yahweh. And what did He do? He spoke to Abraham. He said to him, how do you speak? Through, through words, right? He spoke to Abraham. And what did he say to him? Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So the Lord, so Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And then they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to uh, your descendants, I will give this land. So he built there an altar and then the Lord who had appe- to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountains on the east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham's journey toward continued towards the Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. All right, we'll stop there. So we're going to take a look at those. First ten verses tonight, we may get a little further than that, um, but we want to look at some of the ways that we can see Jesus in the life of Abraham. All right? The first thing I want you, and we're going to kind of talk about the ramifications of Abraham's life too, and we'll start with that. So, the Lord said. What do we think of when we say the Lord said? God spoke. All right? How does God speak to you and me today? Through our hearts, through the Spirit, through the Word. Okay. So, um, I want you to take your Bibles, keep your, um, just go ahead and mark that place because we're going to stay in Genesis. I want you to turn with me really quickly to Hebrews chapter one, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Titus, Timothy, Philemon, Hebrews. Everybody there? Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. God, Hebrews chapter 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed to be heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. Alright? So how does God speak today? Through His Son. These are my words. So when you read the New Testament, 
These are my words. When you read the Old Testament, these are my words. Now, we just saw an example of God speaking to Abraham. And how did he speak to him? Vocally. Right? Now, one of the areas that is always going to give you trouble, because it gives me trouble and it gives everybody around you, everybody else around you trouble, is the reality of deep down in our fallen nature, we don't want the Bible to be enough. I need God to speak to my heart. But remember, when the Holy Spirit speaks, Jesus said this, I will send you another comforter. And when He comes, He will teach you all things concerning me. And truth. Concerning me. The Holy Spirit always points us to Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in your heart, He's going to always point you to the Word, to Christ. That's why it's always going to work. How many of y'all got friends say, well, the, the Spirit's really leading me to do this? Right? How many of y'all have ever had one of your friends tell you, well, the Spirit's leading me to go over to Madagascar and, and preach to Muslims and die? Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Right? The Holy Spirit is leading me to uh, to I, I don't know. The Holy Spirit is leading me to go to seminary. Right? Some people will say that. But the Holy Spirit is leading me to do this or the Holy Spirit is leading me to do that. Most of the time when I hear people say the Holy Spirit is leading me to, it's involving some girl that God has picked for me. Right? Or what I need to do with my money. Or the fact that God is fixing to bless my life. Do you see how egocentric all of those things are? The Holy Spirit is not about you. And that's one of the things that we need to remember. So this text in Hebrew says, God has spoken to us in many ways in the past, but now in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. And when we begin to start adding on to the revelation of God, we are beginning to say what God has said is not enough. And that is a dangerous place to be. The first thing that the devil asked in the garden was, has God said? God told Eve and Adam, you will surely die if you eat from this tree. And the first thing that the devil says to the woman is, hath God really said? He gets her questioning God's truth. So, God has spoken in many ways. So, in the, what we're seeing here in Hebrews is, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that there had been times in the past, in history, where God literally spoke to people out loud. He literally came down and sat down and had a meal with them. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Because all of the conversations and all of the appearances that God made in the Old Testament were intended to point those people to Christ. And once Christ has been revealed, once Christ has redeemed His people on the cross, once that tomb was empty, God has said everything that He needed to say. And He appointed apostles to write down what He said so that you and I could know it. So where should we be going? 
We shouldn't be looking for visions. We shouldn't be looking for dreams. We shouldn't be looking for feelings and premonitions. We should be looking to the Word of God because that's where He speaks to us. And that's the only thing... Well, the devil still tries to even twist God's Word, but that is where we go to have surety, where we go to have eternity, where do we go to have a foundation that cannot be moved. It's through God's Word. So God has spoken in times past. And so what we're seeing today in the life of Abraham is... God speaking to Abraham. Alright, so let's go back to Genesis and see what God was saying to Abraham. Alright, he said, I want you to go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I want you to pack up all of your things and I want you to step out. And Now, would, would you say that Abraham is expressing blind faith? Yes. No. True faith is not blind faith. You don't see it with your eyes, but you see it with your heart. Abraham knew that it was God that was telling him to do this, and there is nothing blind about God's guidance in your life. Now, what is he telling Abraham to do? Pack up, get away from his home where he's comfortable, where he knows people, where he's got connections, where he's comfortable, nobody likes change. But he said, I want you to step out and go to a place that you don't even know about. A place of the Canaanites where they're all pagans. And they, of course, he was from a pagan land himself. And he said, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. And one of the things that we see in Abraham's life here in verse 4 so Abraham did what? Went. As the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. So God speaks. Abraham not only listens, but he obeys. All right? There's two parts to that story in there. We have to trust and obey. Right? Trust without obedience is rebellion. Obedience without trust is slavery. There are a lot of people sitting in church pews on Sunday morning that are there because they have to be. Their parents drag them out of bed and make them go. Or their husband or their wife drag them out of bed and make them go. They're not there because they want to be there. They're there because they have to be there. They're not trusting and obeying. They may be obedient. They may be remembering the the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. But they're not doing it because they trust. They're doing it because they have to, not because they want to. Right? And there are a lot of people sitting out on a boat on Sunday morning fishing in the lake. And they're saying, well, I believe God can. I can worship Him just good here catching these fish as I can with the people of God in His house. And so they're uh, trusting. But they're just not being obedient. Right? It's not about you and fish. It's about Jesus. And so... It takes both. You have to be able to trust and obey. And one of the things we see here is that Abraham trusts God and Abraham is obedient to God. And why is that important? Well, turn with me really quickly over to the book of Romans. Now, who who knows who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. And what was Paul's delegation as an apostle? Does anybody remember? To the Gentiles. That's exactly right. Who preached to the Jews? Peter and the other disciples in Jerusalem, but it was specifically Paul's responsibility to preach to the Gentiles. Um, so Paul writes the book of Romans. It's, 
his grand opus is the one of probably my favorite book. I would think. I think it's my favorite book. That's hard to say because I'm missing the big picture when I say that's my favorite book, and it's all my favorite book. But I do love Romans. And Paul is writing, and at the beginning he kind of addresses the the Jews, but then in chapter three he begins to address the Gentiles, doesn't he? And I want you to notice something. He's addressing Gentiles. But he's going to, in Romans chapter 4, that's where I want you to turn, Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to give us examples of being justified by faith. Now, in order for us as Gentiles to be justified by faith, who do we have to believe in? Jesus. That's exactly right. Christ, that's right in the so, in order for me to be justified by faith, I have to believe in Jesus, don't I? Yeah. Well, I want you to notice the two examples that Paul uses of people that were justified by faith. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast in but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited in favor of what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness, from works apart from the law. So what he's saying there is that Abraham had a faith that justified him. David had a faith that justified him. Now, we live in a world today where people, there are people and preachers and teachers that will teach you that Abraham and David were saved in a different way than you and I. They had the law of Moses. They had to obey the law, etc. Have you ever heard that before? Like the people in the Old Testament were saved in a different way than the people in the New Testament. Well, Paul just threw a wrench into that monkey word. You see? Because what's he saying? He's saying Abraham and David had the saving faith that saves a Gentile. What does that mean? That means that Abraham and David believed in who? Jesus. Abraham and David believed in Jesus. Now, they didn't have the name Jesus. They actually had Joshua, right? Joshua, that means Savior. But they didn't have, they didn't know what he was going to look like, but they believed that he was coming. And that's what I want us to look at now. So now let's go back. Uh, well, Let's, uh, let's remember that Paul is here using Abraham as an example of what saving faith looks like. What does saving faith look like? It trusts in Christ. It trusts in the redemptive plan of God. It trusts in Jesus and it obeys. That's what saving faith looks like. Now, um, really quick, let's, let's let's run down a rabbit hole here. Turn with me back to the book of James.
go to James and let's see if we can find that, that passage. It's right after Hebrews, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Okay, we're looking at chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 14. 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? All right, who is James talking to? Brothers in Christ. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you said to him, Go in peace, be warned, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone will say to you, Well, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, if you go back up to that verse 14... If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Now, what that almost sounds like is, is his works that save him, don't it? Like, you could imply that if you wanted to out of that passage. In order to be saved, you've got to work. Well, there's a problem with that, isn't it? Because what did Paul say? We are justified by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. All right? So now we got this conflict going on. Is there a conflict between Paul and James? Are they con- contradicting one another? They can't contradict one another. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. That means God breathed it out. And if God breathed it, there's not going to be any conflict in it. You see? There's no way there can be a contradiction in the Bible. If there is, then God contradicts Himself. So what we need to do is we need to figure out what's going on here. Wait a minute. Paul says you're saved by faith. It looks like James is saying you're saved by works. But James is not saying you're saved by works. What James is saying is this. Saving faith works. That's what James is saying. If you truly have saving faith, then it's going to be... Evidenced in your life through your works. So, we are saved by faith. But a faith that saves works. Your works are never, ever, ever, ever going to be the roots of your salvation. What our faith is in, not what what the works our faith is in. Our salvation is in Christ. He is the source of our salvation. My faith is a gift that He gives me to believe Him. My faith is the connection that I have to Him that that the eternal life comes to me through. But my faith is not a work. It's a gift from God. Now, if you don't believe me, let's go back to Ephesians. What do you say? For you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. That's three things. Grace, salvation, and faith. 
It is a gift of God. What is the it? Grace, salvation, and faith. All of them are gifts from God. Your salvation is a gift from God. Your ability to believe in God is a gift from God. Grace is a gift from God. And nothing that you did gave you any of those things. But, if you have been saved by grace through faith, it is a gift from God, not of works as any man should boast, but then what does Paul say? For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. The reason you have grace, the reason you have faith, the reason you have salvation is because God has saved you to be a living expression of His grace. And how is that evidenced? Through your works. See how that works? Okay. So what James is saying is, is if you truly are saved, you will truly work. Your works do not save you, but they are an expression that you are saved. Right? I hear people all the time, don't judge me, you're not a fruit inspector. All right? Well, I can tell you this. If anger, wrath, envy, strife, jealousy, heresy, sedition, and drunkenness and carousing is coming out of you, then you better check yourself before you rate yourself. Uh, Lene, we, that, was, that was the whole point of it. Lene asked me a question last time before we left, and, and, and it was talking about in the book of John, it says that there's a sin unto death. And what that means, guys, and I'm going to be honest with you, you're in this room, some of you in here have just been saved by Christ. You have been pulled out of some very, very wicked lifestyles. You have come out of um, alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, and you have professed, you have tasted the good things of Christ. You are now more accountable than people who have not heard of Him. And if you leave this place and you go back out there and you live the way that you used to live, you may be saved, but He will kill you and take you home. Now, I'm just being flat honest with you. You are to be holy because He is holy. He's going to give you the strength and He's going to give you the will and He's going to give you the desire to live the way you're supposed to live. But if you go out there and try to live in your own power, you go out there and you play around in sin, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Now, why do I say that? Because if you go out there and your life is a living expression of anger, wrath, envy, strife, jealousy, heresy, sedition, drunken, and carousing, then the fruits of your life are expressing roots that are not the roots of a born-again, blood-bought child of God. If your life is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, and long-suffering, then you are evidencing the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Now, if you keep on reading in the book of Romans, Paul will tell you, oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to redeem? It's not that you're going to live perfect, guys. There's going to be anger in your life and there's going to be wrath and envy and jealousy and strife and heresy and sedition and drunkenness. There's going to be those things in your life. But those are the things that do not typify the life of a child of God. If you truly are His child, you will sin. But you, if you truly are His child, you will repent. Amen. So what's the difference in me and my addictive nature? 
now than in my addictive nature when I was 18 or 25 or 30. Well, the difference is is that in those times in my life, I obsessed over my sin. Like that was what consumed me. That's what I thought about all the time. I still think about those things, guys. I still battle with all of those old thought processes. But the difference in me now and the difference in me then is I battle. And why do I battle? Because it's not I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I battle. I fall all the time, guys. I heard one preacher say it this way. If you guys knew some of the things that go through my mind and heart, you wouldn't sit there and listen to me. But if I knew some of the things going through your mind and heart, I might not talk to you, you know? (laughs) We're broken folks. But we're redeemed folks. And so we focus on what Christ has done for us, not what we have done in our past. We focus on His promises and His truth. And that's what Abraham did in his life. Abraham was obedient. He trusted God and he followed God. So, we see that Abraham was a faithful servant. Alright, now, we got just enough time to get through one more picture of Jesus. So, how do we see Jesus in that first part? He is the faithful servant. Abraham was a faithful servant, but we're going to see in just a few minutes, Abraham, as soon as Abraham believed and took off down the path, he fell right away, didn't he? Right? He pimped his wife out to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Right? Like immediately. He's a believer now, guys. He is truly a believer. And what did he do? He messed up right away. Why? Because he wasn't trusting and obeying. He was obeying, but he wasn't trusting. God promised him that him and his wife were going to have a baby. And he said, well, if the Pharaoh sees my wife, he's going to steal her and they'll have a baby. And so he lied. But the reality is, is that Abraham was a faithful servant. He heard his father's voice and he yielded to his father's will in his life. But Jesus is the faithful servant who never yielded to the, the world. Right? Never yielded to sin because he didn't, didn't have no part with him. So let's go back to that Genesis 12 passage and see if we can see one more picture of Jesus in the life of Abraham. Let's look at verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for this famine was severe in the land. So what happens? Abraham obeyed God, and did God bless his life with immediate riches? No, No, he sent him to a place where there was a terrible famine going on. Right? God God is not the Wizard of Oz and the yellow brick road is not for real. Right. Right? The road to Emmaus is a painful road and we are to take up our crosses and follow Him. And everything is not going to be a blessing because this life is temporary and God wants you to remember that. God wants you to set your affections on the things above, not on the things below. And so God's going to make life hard. Y'all remember when we were doing the music, the praise and worship? right? I worked all of my life as a, a vendor. I, I, I lifted soda pop for 20 years. And now my spine is giving me fits. I've lifted over 3 million cases of Coca-Cola in my life. All right? And when I sit down and play a guitar now at 53 years old, 
all of my fingertips go numb and I can't feel the pick and I can't feel the string on my hand anymore. Right? Why? Because I'm getting old. My body is starting to yield. And that's what's going to happen to each and every one of you in this room. Right? It's going to happen. Life is not going to get easier. It's going to get tougher. I'm just being honest and kind to you. I'm just telling you the truth. Life is not what you see on social media. Life is real. So, there was a famine in the land. Abraham went down to Egypt. Sojourn there, the famine was severe in the land. So what does Abraham do? He packs up and goes where? To Egypt. Hmm. Where can I see Jesus in that? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, uh, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had. Israel, that's Jacob's name after God changed his name. Uh, and came to Beersheba. And actually it's Israel, it's him and all his sons too, right? Basically Joseph's already in Egypt and he's called for his father to come there with him. Why does Jacob and the boys pack up and move to Egypt? What's the problem? There's a famine in the land. That's exactly right. It's kind of a repetitive thing, isn't it? There's a famine in the land. And so now, just like Abraham, when there was famine in the land, went down to Egypt. Now his grandson, Jacob, there's a famine in the land. What's he doing? He's packing up and going down there. And who's with him? Jacob and Judah, right? How do, what, what's so important about Judah? That's the line of Christ. And what do they do? They pack up and go down to where? Egypt. Right? And uh, he said, I... Uh, he, he came to Beersheba. He offered a what? Sacrifice uh, to God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in vision of the, of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely do what? I will bring you up again from Egypt. Okay? So what's he saying? Jacob, don't be afraid. Go down there. I will, I'm going to send you down there, and then I'm going to bring you back up again. All right? Hmm. Where do we see Jesus in that? Let's turn really quickly over to Hosea chapter 11. All right? I'm going to be watching y'all guys because I'm going to see who knows where Hosea is and who's having to look at their in the front of their Bibles. Yeah. Hosea 11. Yeah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micaiah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Daniel, then Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. Um, God is talking about how um, his, his people have rejected him. He's blessed them. He's done all of these things for them. And yet they still rebel against him. They still continually... Uh, fall into idolatry, etc., etc. Look at verse 11. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel... Who is Israel? Jacob. The tribes of Jacob. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Alright? So, what is that? That's a look back on the past. 
How many times have we already seen that God has called His Son out of Egypt? Well, He called Abraham back out of Egypt, didn't He? And did He call Jacob back out of Egypt? When did He call Jacob back out of Egypt? In the past. Who remembers the exact instance? Uh, uh, was it after he wrestled with God? No, 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 no. Could Jacob, uh, Jacob and all of his sons and Joseph and all of them. After Joseph got captured, or after he went down to get them. When did they leave Egypt? When he died? Joseph did die. Oh, when Egypt got a famine. Egypt had a famine? Yeah. Why did they have a famine? Because... Uh, because God put his judgment on them. Moses, Moses, I have heard my people's affliction. Go down there and tell Pharaoh to what? Let my people go. Remember? So he's going to call his son where? Back out of Egypt. Remember that? Everybody remember? All right, good. Last thing and then we'll be done. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. That's an easy one to find. Everybody knows where Matthew is. Right? Now, we'll start in verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down to the ground, and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi are left for their own country by another way. All right, heart to herald angels sing. Christmas time, Jesus has been born. The wise men have brought the gifts. Right? So the wise men, this is actually two years after Jesus was born. So anytime you see a nativity scene and you see wise men in it, they weren't at the manger. They, they were at Jesus' house. All right, remember that. You know, it, was the, it was the shepherds that came to the manger where he was born. This is actually two years later. How we know it's two years later because, uh, well, we'll see here in just a second. Verse 13. Now, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. Now, why did they have to stay there? Because what was Herod doing? Every every male-born child that was two years or younger, he was killing them. Why? He knew there was a king. Does that sound familiar? Why did Pharaoh... What did Pharaoh do... With Moses, why did why, why did Moses' mom put him in the bull in the, the little ark in the ark and push him out? Why? Trying to kill all the, to kill all the babies. Why was he trying to kill all the babies? How many of y'all remember Genesis three fifteen when we talked about that the proto evangelion, the first mention of the gospel? I will put a hatred between your seed and her seed. The serpent is going to constantly try to kill the woman's seed. Who is the woman's seed? The child of promise. Now next time we're together on Friday, we're going to see Abraham be promised a seed. And Paul's going to let us know that that seed is Jesus. Okay? But what am I trying to bring up here? It says in verse 
verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2. He remained there until the death of Herod. So what's happening? Herod's trying to kill all these people. Why? Because Satan is inspiring these men to do whatever he can to thwart the promises of God. Right? How many times has Satan tried to destroy you? Right? Why? Because if you are a child of God, you have a mark on you. And you are an expression of the promise of God. Actually, you are, it would be better said that you are a fruition. You are the fruit of the work of Christ on the cross and the tomb. You're a fruition of that. You're an expression of that, you see? And so everyone that Christ died to save is now an expression of the promise of God. And what does the devil always try to do to God's promise? He can't destroy it, but he tries to confuse it, twist it, contort it, just wipe it out, get it away. And so with Pharaoh and Moses, he was trying to kill the promised seed, and Herod was trying to do the same exact thing. And so what did God do? He told Joseph and Mary, get Jesus and go to Egypt. Now watch what it says at the end of this, and then we'll be done. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. See? What is he saying? He's saying that 700 years ago Hosea made a prophecy that out of Egypt I called my son. And all of the Israelites would have immediately thought of what? Abraham being called out of Egypt. Jacob being called out of Egypt. The children of Israel being called out of Egypt. That would have been immediately where their head went to. Israel is the son of God, if you will. And they would have immediately thought that. But what the book of Matthew is doing now that Jesus has, the word has become flesh and is walking among us, what is the book of Matthew saying? Oh no. That prophecy wasn't about the past, it's about the future. It's all about the promise of God. And all of that that happened in the, in the past were simply shadows or foretellings of what really was going to happen. And what was really going to happen, Jesus was coming back out of Egypt to redeem His people. You see how that works? So it's always about Jesus. So, I hope that everybody took something from this lesson tonight. When we get back together next week, if you, uh, I'll be back next Friday. If you want to um, read ahead, we're going to probably be able to get through um, the seed of Abraham, or the uh, some of your Bibles will say the offspring of Abraham, and we will probably be able to get through um, that, and we'll probably be able to get into his uh, life with Lot. A little, we should be able to, so I'm saying like Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 14-ish. We're going to try to see Jesus in those passages next week. So if you'd like to practice, if you get some time on your hands this week, open up your Bible and look at Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 14 and see if there's anywhere that you see Jesus. I'd love for you to come tell me next week on Friday, hey man, I saw him here. Maybe, maybe we could figure that out. But thank you all guys for your time. Um, y'all be blessed. Let's close with a word of prayer and y'all have a good night, okay? Father, we do thank you so much that you keep your promises. And we thank you that, that you love us and that you saved us. We thank you for your son Jesus and what he's done for us. 
And Jesus, we thank you. We, we, we pray and ask you to continue to conform us to your image. Help us to become more like you. Help us to get our eyes off this world and get our eyes on the eternal hope and promise that you have for us. Uh, be with us now as we go. Bear these words in our heart that we might not sin against you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.